Our gospel reading this morning is from John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For the next few weeks leading up to the season of Lent, we are looking at events in Jesus' life that were turning points in his ministry times when his openness to seeking and being faithful to God's will for his life facilitated the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven on earth. As I said last week with Dale's upcoming retirement and a new strategic planning process about to begin that will guide us forward into the next five years or so, I wonder what we can learn from Jesus and his faithfulness in the critical moments of his life and ministry? In what ways might our openness to seeking and being faithful to God's will for our life together facilitate the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven on earth here uh, in our congregation, to wider to our community and still wider to the world? <clears throat> Last week we looked at the turning point of Jesus' baptism and how important it was for Jesus to begin his public ministry with God's declaration of his identity as the beloved son. He was reminded of who he was and that the one who named him and called him had never and would never depart from him. And that was a truth we claimed for ourselves and for our church. Today we look at the story of the wedding in Cana that except for one thing that happened, would probably have looked like countless other weddings of that day. And truth be told, uh, most weddings, as lovely as they are, and as much planning as goes into them as does, they're hard to remember years later, unless, of course, it was your wedding, um, or one of your loved ones, your close uh, family members. Uh, and you also remember the weddings where something unusual happens. Like a wedding I did at the Seattle Aquarium, when I was standing under the glass dome where all the fish are swimming up above our heads, 
And all through the services I was officiating, I was uh, very much aware of two huge barracuda circling my head all through the service, attracted not by my wisdom or the power of my words, but by the two candelabra that were right on either side of me. And then there was the wedding uh, on the old schooner I did out in Elliott Bay, where all the crew wore black eye patches and full, wore full pirate regalia. And when I gave permission for the bride and groom to kiss, unbeknownst to me, the pirates started firing cannons off on both sides of the ship. And there was no way I ever got everyone's attention back in order to do the final blessing of the wedding. But I digress. Jesus, his mother, and his family and friends attended an unforgettable wedding in Canaan. People are still talking about this particular wedding. There was no celebration more inclusive in the Jewish community than a wedding, especially in an outlying town like Cana. People were invited from surrounding communities, and sometimes they would come to stay for an entire week for the wedding celebration. The wedding party itself would sweep through the town going up and down each uh, alleyway or roadway to make sure that none of the Jewish people were left out because that would be a bad omen for the newlywed couple. Apparently, it was just your typical traditional wedding celebration with an average and I'm sure very pleasant reception going on until that wine gave out. Now, to run out of wine before the party was over was a serious problem, uh, probably in any day and age, but in particularly in, in this day and age. It was a situation that would have caused a loss of honor to the host family. And in that culture, friends, especially uh, from those from the inner group of wedding celebrants, the wedding party, those friends usually sent gifts like wine ahead of time so that they would be available and, and no problem of uh, wine running out at the wedding reception. So a lack of wine might have implied a lack of friends or a lack of connectedness in the community, and that was a huge thing. Um, if Jesus and his family were in that inner circle of friends of the, of the bridegroom, of the wedding party, then he would have been obligated among those obligated to provide those kinds of gifts for the wedding reception. Now, we don't know for sure Jesus' role and his connectedness to this group, but we do know that by providing wine for this threatened family, Jesus honors the family and the bridegroom as host and potentially saves his own family honor as well. However much we appreciate the gift of hospitality today, the people of Jesus' time and culture practiced it virtually as a survival skill, a way of looking after one another in a hostile and often perilous environment. And it was an assurance of being looked after by others in return. And so, at this otherwise unforgettable uh, wedding, for those who had the eyes to see, Jesus stepped out of his humanity and into his divinity by changing water into an unbelievable amount of vintage wine. This story provides a glimpse for us of Jesus and his mother as human beings who had friends and who celebrated the turning points in their lives, who fretted when something went wrong 
and who didn't especially enjoy having to leave the party to troubleshoot a problem. The first part of Jesus' response to Mary's observation that the wine has run out is, sounds kind of cheeky. He says, woman, what's it to you and to me? Now, the surprise in that comment is not that he called his mother woman, because apparently that's not all that, in common, that, that uncommon back then. The surprise might have been that Jesus acted at first as if he was oblivious to the cultural issues we just discussed. But the second part of his answer sounds much more serious and theological. My hour has not yet come. You know that, Mother. The phrase suggests that Jesus had anticipated a more carefully chosen setting to reveal the God part of his identity to the community. In the political turmoil of first century Judah, the, one, the way one called attention to oneself could definitely be a matter of life or death. Jesus, understandably, wanted to take on that uh, mantle of new leadership uh, in the best possible way. He wanted to reveal his new identity to that community in the best possible way. I'm sure he did not want to stumble awkwardly onto the public stage. But then came the unexpected circumstances. He attended that wedding. The celebration went on and on, and that wine ran out. The host family faced serious embarrassment, and Mary was confident that her son could redeem the situation. Now, I'll just stop right there and say that I have always wished that I could know what had happened during those years of Jesus' life we don't know very much about at all that gave her such confidence that she could, knew she, that he could solve that problem right then and there. But Jesus objected. Mom, woman, my hour has not yet come. But then he gives in. Why? Because his mother does not take no for an answer. I think one thing, too, that often gets missed in this story is the apparent ease with which Jesus seems to surrender his carefully thought through strategic plan for ministry, whatever that might have been, and he is able to embrace this new possibility. I'm sure he preferred whatever plan A had been, but he moved smoothly into plan B the opportunity presented by unexpected circumstances. So, for Jesus, timing, no matter how important, takes a back seat to human need, as it would throughout his ministry. How fitting that the hour of Jesus is, in a sense, here, in this moment of need, that moment when the reign of God breaks in for this family, as it does in every wonder worked by Jesus, and in fact by his entire life, death, and resurrection. There are so many things you can focus on in this familiar story. The choice Jesus made to include many servants in this behind-the-scenes making of a miracle is one option. Those servants who first had to haul 180 gallons of water to fill empty jars that were normally filled with water to carry out the routine Jewish uh, purification rituals. The fact that new wine 
for a new purpose was created using those old jars. The fact that they were filled to the brim with 180 gallons of the kind of wine most people only look at on the wine list at restaurants but can never afford to taste. The fact that the word used for fill to the brim is only used one other time in the Gospel of John, and that is when the disciples fill up 12 baskets of leftover bread after the feeding of the 5,000. A connection between the wine and the bread? The fact that in contrast to the steward, the disciples are able to recognize the glory of God in this act, and they believe in Jesus. This miracle of the wine shatters the boundaries of their conventional world. And the disciples are willing to entertain the possibility that boundary-breaking marks the in-breaking of God. The steward was only able to see the good gift of amazingly good wine, which was wonderful. But John's readers, you and me, we who know the rest of the story, are able to see that God has done an amazingly wonderful thing. God has waited to give the very best for last, as scripture said, the very best gift to Israel and to the world, the gift of the Messiah. The wedding at Cana is a metaphor for new transformational beginnings. When Jesus changes water into wine, the transformation of the world, according to God's holy purpose, is becoming a reality through the presence of Jesus, the Word, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. The new wine breaks in upon and transforms the religious status quo. So what does this all mean for us? It means, friends, that if Jesus can change water into wine, he can change us too. It means that the unexpected or unplanned circumstances of life are often opportunities for God to break into our lives in ways we would not ordinarily have the eyes to see and to use us in ways we would never have imagined. It means that if there is a point of need in our lives or in our church or in our world, Jesus is there his spirit working to bring wisdom and healing and hope and new direction. It means that God is responsive to human needs. That's what we just celebrated at Christmas time. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. It means on this weekend that we honor Dr. King's birth and his amazingly transformational work in his all too short time on this earth. We also remember the source of life and light that guided and sustained and enabled him to speak truth to power. In a sermon preached at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, his home church, just two months before he was killed by those who feared him, Dr. King said this, Every now and then, 
I think about my own death, and I think about my own funeral, and I don't think of it in a morbid sense. Every now and then I ask myself, what is it that I would want said? And I leave the word to you this morning. I'd like somebody to mention that that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be on the right side of the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to feed the hungry. And I want you to be able to say that I, I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Friends, as the world rises up now to help the nation of Haiti in this unbelievably tragic time of unspeakable loss and, and questionable future, we remember the voice of the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke God's promise of a future and a hope to a people who were all but hopeless. And as we remember the one who time and time again chose to enter into people's lives to bring compassion and healing and hope where there was no hope, we know that the Spirit of Jesus is with the people of Haiti and that death and disaster will not have the final word there. We know that the Spirit of Jesus is there quietly and behind the scenes working through those whose hearts have been touched by the miracle of abundant compassion filled to the brim by it in order to offer help and hope to others where there is no hope. And that the same Spirit of Jesus is working to embolden those who have a prophetic voice in this situation in a more public way, able to bring truth to power for people in this time of need. It is still very early in this new year of 2010. And I know that all of us are looking with hope for this new decade to be filled with better times than the last one. But when we see the circumstances of our brothers and sisters in Haiti, we are given a startling reminder of the precious moment, the precious gift of each moment of life, of every conversation, every good meal we share, and good or even not so good glass of wine we share with a friend or loved one. When Jesus made the decision to help his friends, even though his hour, his preferred timing, had not yet come, we are reminded of his faithfulness and desire to help us in all of our times and places of great need. We are reminded of our calling to help others, and even and maybe especially to help others when it is not convenient. And as we enter into this turning point in the life of our church, let us ask ourselves as we enter into this new decade, how are we being called to serve? What 
Hidden abundance lies within our sacred traditions, ready to be transformed in this hour, like the water in those great stone jars. What unseen power lies within us that we do not yet recognize? How is God calling us to transform the life of this congregation and to continue to be a transforming presence in our community and in our world? Beloved community of Mercer Island Presbyterian Church, may we open our hearts and our lives to be changed and filled to the brim by Christ's transformational love. And then there will be no stopping the miracle of the Spirit of Jesus at work through us and in us, continuing to change water into the wine of abundant love and grace and hope. Let us pray. Jesus, you have come among us working wonders time and again, showing us signs of God's miraculous abundance. Yet when you change the ordinary waters of our own lives into the finest of wines, we often do not have the eyes to see that it is of your doing and of your desire for us. Spirit of the living God, open our hearts and minds to experience the presence of your power and glory in the everyday rising of the sun or in the amazing miracle of the birth of new life. Reveal to us your miracles of transformation and abundance as signs of your overflowing love and grace at work around us and within us. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.